And we're grateful you're here, whether you are in person or online. Again, if you are, go to the Watch Live page and fill out an attendance form so we have a record of your participation with us tonight. Uh, We are going to continue our study of the life of Christ this evening. And next week, I will not be here. I will be gone. But Mike Gifford is going to step in. He's going to continue this study. His focus next week will actually be on John the Baptist. He's going to examine some of the, the uh, birth narrative related to John the Baptist as well as some of the ministry of John the Baptist, all in preparation for our study because there's so much correlation happening between John the Baptist and Jesus, and he's going to help provide that background as we move forward. Tonight, we're going to focus on the announcements of Jesus's birth. We're not to his birth yet, but we're going to look at the two Uh, narratives we have that correlate to his parents, his earthly parents finding out about him. We're going to be focused on two passages, Matthew chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 and Luke chapter 1 verse 26 through 38. One thing you'll notice that I didn't mention last week is is, uh, with each lesson there'll probably be some form of uh, man-made artwork that I'll throw up on the screen because The life of Jesus has so affected this world that great works of art are used for every, are are created in response to every story in the life of Jesus. And and I find that just to be a unique way to connect, um, to to, uh, illustrate somewhat someone's imagination of what one of these events might, might have looked like. Now, I'm not here to advocate for these. Uh, depictions of artwork. I'm just utilizing them because it serves as a, 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 a means of saying, hey, this is how significant the story of Jesus is, that it has um, taken hold of even the art world. And uh, for instance, the image on the screen today is a piece of artwork done by Leonardo da Vinci. But I'm not trying to highlight that stuff. I just want to explain why I use it. It's just there for a, um, visual imagery. It's not important. It's just my way of giving a background to each of these titles. That's really all it is. But before we really dive into the texts of Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1, I think we need to talk about betrothal. Because in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 and Luke chapter 1 and verse 27, we have a reference to the fact that Joseph and Mary, at the time of these announcements, were betrothed to one another. And and to really grasp or to really understand the significance of the announcement narratives as well as the uh, commensurate responses of these two individuals we really have to understand we have to understand the significance of what it means for them to have been betrothed to one another so i want to spend a little bit of time on that because in our minds we often equate betrothal to engagement but they're not quite the same. See, here's what you need to know. Jewish marriages had two stages. They had what uh, one author called a commitment ceremony, which is what the betrothal is a reference to. And then sometime later, they would have the actual marriage ceremony or the wedding. The betro- so the betrothal period began at some point in time, and then it found its consummation, if you will, when the the wedding actually took place. And so we hear this, we hear that there's two stages, betrothal and marriage. 
And in our minds, we automatically go engagement and wedding day. That's how we process it. But the betrothal stage was more binding than a modern Western engagement. Now, you have to remember in that day and age, in that culture, you still operated with the arranged marriage system. Now, the uh, groom would have some input on, on who he might be in, betrothed to. He might have some influence on, with his own father on the arranging of that marriage. But we are still in an arranged marriage culture at the time of Joseph and Mary. And so here's how the betrothal worked. It involved a formal agreement arranged between a father who was seeking a wife for his son and the father of a potential bride. And the way it worked is that upon payment of a purchase price to the bride's father, and the reason that there had to be a price is because the bride's father is losing someone in his household who's a worker and a helper, and the household of the groom is gaining someone who is a worker and a helper. So there is a price paid for that. Upon payment of a purchase price to the bride's father, as well as a written agreement and or oath by the son, the couple was officially betrothed. Now, once a betrothal agreement was made, it was a legally binding contract entered into before witnesses which could be terminated only by death or by divorce. In the event that either party died before the wedding ceremony, before the actual marriage ceremony, in the event that either party died, groom or bride, the survivor was considered to be a widow or widower. Now, that's not the case in modern engagement. If someone gets engaged today and their fiancé passes away, they're not viewed as a widow or widower. So that's, that tells you how significant this betrothal period is. It is as if you are married. From a legal status, they were married from the moment that they were betrothed. The other thing is, as was mentioned in this statement, not only uh, can could a, a betrothal only be terminated by death, but also by divorce? Let me explain. If the betrothed man desired to end this relationship before the marriage, the reason I say man is because if you study the Bible subject of divorce in that day and age, women weren't quite in a position of power to initiate divorce. Divorce was only initiated by men. But in the instance that a man decided to call off the relationship, if he wanted to end the relationship before they got to the marriage ceremony, so during the betrothed period he wanted to end the marriage, he had to put a certificate of divorce into the woman's hands just as he would have to do if he were married. You can go to Deuteronomy chapter 24, read the first four verses, and there Mosaic Law outlines the process of issuing a certificate of divorce. If you're married under Mosaic law, the only way you can, you can uh, divorce is if you give your spouse, your wife as a husband, a certificate of divorce that gave her authorization to remarry. Now, there were stipulations as to when you could divorce, just as there are in the New Testament. 
particularly in the arena of sexual misconduct, if you will, uh, uh, sexual immorality, an affair, that sort of thing. And such was the case even during the betrothal period. I state all that simply for this reason. If you were betrothed to a woman, the only way to, to end the betrothal relationship is either by one of you passing away or by the husband initiating divorce. In other words, even in that time period of betrothal, to get out of the marriage required you to do the exact same thing you would do once you're married. So for all intents and purposes, in the eyes of the Jewish people, once you entered that legal agreement at the betrothal point, you were legally married. Now that's significant. It makes you think, well, so what's the difference? Why not just call it all marriage? Why is there a two-stage process if for all legal purposes you're married from the point you get betrothed? Why is there a difference? In Western culture, when you're engaged, you're not married yet. So you can end it at any moment for any reason, and you don't have to do any legal process. You don't have to go about anything. You just face some embarrassment or have to deal with the... People being upset at you, but that's it. You don't have to go to the court. Not so in, in, in the betrothal situation. And here's what makes it different. During the betrothal period, sexual relations and living together under one roof were not permitted. So when you were betrothed to someone, for the period between the moment of the, of the betrothal starting and the date of your wedding... You didn't live together. You were still separate. And you could not con consummate the relationship. But you were legally married. So, even though the couple, Joseph and Mary in particular, didn't reside in the same house and had not consummated their physical relationship, they would still be referred to as husband and wife even during the betrothal period. You see, we need to understand that for them to be identified as betrothed to one another, that's much more significant than being engaged. We need to wrap our heads around that because it helps us understand and appreciate the dynamics of Joseph and Mary's relationship and their responses to the announcement of Jesus. One other thing about the betrothal period that I forgot I need to mention. Typically, the marriage ceremony was about a year after the betrothal ceremony. And at that time, when the, when the betrothal period ends, when that marriage ceremony is finally scheduled to happen, and it can be that the betrothal period exists in large part to give time for that bride's price to be paid in full, but at the end of that betrothal period, the groom, the husband, would go to the father-in-law's house to fetch his wife. And it would be then, at that wedding ceremony, that the, the woman would leave her father's home to go and finally live with her husband. And they would have a big feast to go along with it. So when you get to like Matthew chapter 25... And you, you read this 
parable of the, the ten virgins, these women who are out in town with their, uh, their, their um, lanterns and they're trying to stay awake to celebrate with the bridegroom as he goes to fetch his bride and, and so on. Uh, when you read about the parable of the wedding feast, all that, all that is in the context of this betrothal period leading up to the great ceremony when they finally can start living together and consummate their relationship. But in, in the context of first century Judaism, you were, you were husband and wife from the moment you became betrothed to one another. And with this understanding of the dynamics of Joseph and Mary's relationships, we can, we can better understand why in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, the text indicates that Mary's pregnancy occurred before they came together. In other words, it, it, Mary was pregnant before there was the wedding ceremony aspect of their relationship, before they had consummated the physical relationship. And, and understanding the betrothal period helps us understand why in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 19, Joseph is able to be referred to as Mary's husband during this, this betrothal period. And, and when we understand what betrothal really means, it helps us understand why also in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 19, Joseph is identified as a just man when he resolves to divorce Mary. We'll talk more about that in a moment as to why that makes him just. But when we start to understand betrothal, we can understand why divorce is the option he's choosing in this scenario before the intervention of a messenger from God in a dream. But we can understand all these dynamics more, and we can come to appreciate much greater why Mary said, when Mary says, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord, let it be according to your word. We can appreciate what she's committing to in that moment when we understand the betrothal period better. And I'll bring some of that up as we continue on in the study, but I felt like we needed to just understand what it meant to be betrothed first. Now, there's not going to be a whole lot of slides for a little while because I just want us to look at the text and talk about it for a moment. And I want to invite you to go to Luke chapter 1. We're going to read the announcement story to Mary first. So in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, we have Mary receiving word that she's going to be the mother of the Son of God. So let's read that. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of Most high will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, 
has also conceived a son, and this is the month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, a couple things to note, just a, a just in the first verse there of this, verse 26, just to set context. First off, it says in the sixth month. When it says in the sixth month, it's referring to the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That time frame gets repeated uh, in verse 36, that sixth month of her pregnancy. Because the preceding account is all about Zacharias and Elizabeth being able to have John the Baptist in their old age. It's the conception of John the Baptist in their old age. It's quite interesting. You go from that family conceiving in their old age to Mary conceiving in her youth, but not just her youth, in her inexperience, if you will. It's God saying, nothing's impossible for me. And look, over here with Zacharias and Elizabeth, I'm going to do something that's impossible. Something akin to what Abraham and Sarah experienced. But now with you, Mary, I'm not just going to do something impossible. I'm doing something unfathomable. It's as if God is upping the ante between John the Baptist's conception and Jesus' conception to illustrate that Jesus, that John is great, but Jesus is greater. It's an interesting dynamic if you study uh, Luke chapter 1 and you, see, you look at parallels between John the Baptist's birth and Jesus' birth. And what is interesting is, is in John the Baptist, it's much more... Um, Oh, what's the word I was looking for there? Hold on one second. I've lost my terminology, so forget that. In John the Baptist, you, you have, it's much more ceremonial. His, he's going to be associated with Jerusalem uh, because of his father, who's a priest, whereas Joseph and Mary are associated with this small town of Nazareth out in the boondocks of Palestine, if you will. And John the Baptist's birth is going to be uh, attended by many and celebrated, where Jesus' birth is going to be much more humble, with less attendees, no additional family present. But yet, the terminology associated with John the Baptist is that he's great. He's going to be a great prophet of God, but with Jesus it's he's just great because he is the son of God. So there's a lot of parallels between the two uh, that, are, that are quite interesting to study, but I don't want to spend too much time on that. So when we look here at, at this first verse, we find out six months referring to Elizabeth's pregnancy. We also have mention of the angel Gabriel. I don't want to dive into Gabriel too much, but he's only mentioned really in three scenarios throughout the entire Bible. You have him mentioned in relation to uh, Mary here, announcing uh, to Mary uh, the conception of Jesus. Also identified in connection with John, John the Baptist's connection, conception. And then if you go back to Daniel, I think it's Daniel chapter 8 and 9, where Gabriel makes an appearance there as a messenger as well. And those are the only instances of, of Gabriel being mentioned uh, throughout Scripture. But 
He's here to announce to Mary that she is going to be the one to carry the Son of God. Now, here's what we know about Mary. One, she's a, she's a resident of Nazareth. Now, notice that. She's a resident of Nazareth before Jesus is born. We often think, when, when we think about Jesus and Nazareth, oh, yeah, remember he was born in Bethlehem. He had to flee to Egypt for a while, and when he came back, he settled in Nazareth. No, no, they resided in Nazareth before, or at least Mary resided in Nazareth before Jesus was conceived. It's worth mentioning because think about that. Nazareth is her hometown. The one, the one bad thing about a hometown is everybody knows everybody and everybody knows your business, right? Especially when it's a small hometown. Not like a big metropolis like Jerusalem down there. This is just a rural country town out in the middle of Galilee. And Mary is about to become pregnant during a period of her relationship with Joseph when she's not supposed to be engaging in sexual activity with him. So imagine... Imagine the rumors, imagine the, the uh, comments, imagine the looks. And, and what I find so fascinating about the bravery of Mary is it'd be one thing if she grew up and resided in one town, went to Bethlehem, gave birth to Jesus, fled to Egypt, and then when they returned, they chose to go somewhere else so they didn't have to deal with the, the people who knew that she got pregnant before she had her wedding ceremony. It'd be one thing if she decided to relocate somewhere where they could stay away from the people who, who had negative comments and who looked down on her, but they returned to the same town, the same town where her conception took place, the same town where she grew up, and the same town where everybody would know her story. So I, f I find some bravery in that. The other thing we should note about Mary is that she is most likely a teenager by our definition. Now, Mary's age at the time of Gabriel's announcement is never mentioned. But we can do some inference based on the standard practice of betrothals at that time. Typically, a girl was betrothed somewhere between the ages of 13 and 16. It's at age 13 that Jewish children have either their bar mitzvah, if they're a boy, or I believe it's called the bat mitzvah, if it's a girl. It's the age at which you become considered an adult in the Israelite faith. And when we think about the age of 13, it is the, I mean, the age of puberty, that sort of thing. And so in the Jewish culture, a man would be an, an older man would be betrothed to a younger girl. And, and they would marry them when they were 13 to 16 because that, that gives them more birthing years, if you think about it, more childbearing years. So it's not stated how old Mary is, but if we consider the standard of practice of the day, she would likely be somewhere between the ages of 13 and 16. The other thing we do know about Mary is that she's related to Elizabeth. 
Does anybody know what their, what their family status was, what their relationship was? What was Elizabeth to Mary? You are correct, Billy. You know, how many of you grew up hearing that they were cousins? Anybody? Raise your hand. You don't have to be shy. It's funny to me because that's what I grew up hearing. But the text doesn't say that. The text just identifies Elizabeth as a relative. So Mary and Elizabeth are related to one another, and we know that, that Mary's probably young. Elizabeth is past childbearing age, so there's a gap in age there. And we, we know that once that part of the announcement to Mary is, hey, Elizabeth is, is pregnant as well. She's six months pregnant. So right there, if... Just let me throw this out there. If the conception of Jesus occurs around the time of this announcement from Gabriel, then Jesus and John the Baptist are about six months apart in age. But Mary finds out that Elizabeth's pregnant, and and it's almost going to serve as a confirmation to her of what God's going to do in her, because God's doing this miraculous thing with Elizabeth. And we learn here, we didn't read this part, but toward the end of Luke chapter 1, we find out that Mary goes to, to visit Elizabeth after she learns of her own situation, after this announcement. You can see that down in, um, particularly in verse uh, 39, you, we find out that Mary actually spends about three months with Elizabeth. So think about this. If Mary goes to see Elizabeth when Elizabeth is six months pregnant, and she stays for about three months. There's a couple of conclusions we can draw. One, she probably stayed until John the baptizer was born. Additionally, if she stayed there for three months and her conception began at that six-month mark for Elizabeth, then when she returns to, say, Nazareth, She's returning, potentially three months pregnant. She's returning at the start of her second trimester. That means she's returning, and that evidence is starting to show pretty well. So all that is interesting. It makes you wonder, at what stage in the pregnancy does Joseph find out that his betrothed wife is pregnant? Just something to ponder. One last thing I want to mention about Mary's uh, experience with the announcement here. Did you notice? Actually, you wouldn't because we didn't read this part. Look back at Luke chapter 1, verse 5. There is a statement about Elizabeth. Elizabeth is called a daughter of who? Luke chapter 1, verse 5. A daughter of who? Aaron. Who was Aaron? Aaron was the first high priest. So that means that Elizabeth is a descendant of the priestly tribe. That's the tribe of Levi. And it's kind of uh, interesting to see that her husband, Zacharias, is a, a priest himself. Now we're told that Elizabeth and Mary are relatives. We don't know how they're relatives, But one thing I find interesting, 
when we studied the genealogy of Jesus last week, one of the big emphases was that Jesus is a descendant of David. He is a descendant of the royal family. But the possibility exists through Mary if she is also of the same family tree as Elizabeth and therefore a descendant of Aaron, then the possibility potentially exists that Jesus is also a descendant of the high priestly lineage. Now, I find that interesting because you get to the book of Hebrews and Jesus is referred to as our sympathizing high priest. Now, Jesus never lays claim to a, a priestly lineage. Jesus never uh, utilizes that. Scripture doesn't expound on it. But if, in fact, Mary is a descendant of uh, the Aaronic the uh, family in the high priestly family, then, then to some degree Jesus has that lineage in him, and that just makes me appreciate all the more his identification as our sympathizing high priest. Just something uh, interesting in the text to throw out there for you to ponder and then to uh, debate with me later when you disagree with me. But thought I'd throw it out there. Let's um, now turn our attention to the most significant statement in the, the announcement story related to Mary, and that is that she has found favor with God. Gabriel shows up and tells her, you found favor now, God's choice of Mary was sovereign. Honestly, there is nothing Mary did to earn the right to be the mother of Jesus. This is a God's sovereign choice. But I think as we watch Mary, we can at least come to appreciate why God chose her. Because... That significant statement that appears at the end of our reading there in Luke chapter 1, verse 38. When Mary has heard the announcement, been told what's going to happen, and her response is simply, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That is such a powerful response to this situation. That term translated servant is the Greek word doulos, which you may have heard in, in sermons before, is the term that can be translated either slave or servant. And so here in this context, Mary's response, as one, one author said, Mary's response is one of quiet submission because the title she attributes to herself, that title of servant, expresses complete obedience since a servant could not do but the will of the master. So consider the gravity of her statement. Consider the gravity of, let it be to me according to your word. In that statement, she is stating her acceptance of the unique circumstances surrounding this pregnancy without consulting Joseph, without making excuses, without complaining about the extreme difficulty of the assignment, whether it be the embarrassment or uh, the, the risk to her safety or the potential banishment from her family or anything like that. When Mary says, let it be to me according to your word, she's declaring her willingness to prioritize God's will without exception. A 
Again, God's selection of Mary was his sovereign choice. But when you consider her response, you can't help but go, I understand why God would want to choose her to be the one to bring his son into this world and to raise his son and to be with his son throughout his life. You can appreciate God's choice all the more. And the same can be said of Joseph. So let's turn over now to Matthew chapter 1. Look at verses 18 through 25 with me, and we'll talk about Joseph's reception of this announcement, uh, which is after Mary's and different than Mary's. Matthew chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Joseph wasn't with Mary when Gabriel came and spoke to her. Joseph didn't get all of that background information prior to finding out that Mary was pregnant. So one day he learns that his wife is pregnant. What is he going to conclude at that moment? He knows that biologically the only way she can get pregnant is if she's had sex with someone. And so his conclusion is, well, I'm not the father, so some other man must be. She must have committed adultery. Logic dictates to him that that's the only option here. And so here he is, betrothed to a woman that he dearly loves, and the evidence of that love is here in this passage. He's betrothed to a woman that he loves, but he's a just man. We need to understand that just description. Some translations will even use the word righteous instead of just. It is that word, whether it's just or righteous, it is a characteristic that refers to one whose way of thinking, feeling, and acting is wholly conformed to the will of God. In other words, one translation says it this way, Joseph was faithful to the law. Joseph was the guy who so desired to do things God's way that he was committed to whatever God said. Joseph is identified as a man who so pursues righteousness that he conforms every aspect of his life to the will of God. And so here he is, betrothed to a woman, and the law dictates that because of what she's done, he must separate from her. 
he must divorce her. That's how he understood it. And so Joseph looks at the situation. He sees three options. He could proceed with the marriage. He could go ahead and go through finishing the betrothal period and going through with the marriage ceremony. He could ignore Mary's condition and and proceed forward. But apparently he didn't consider this possibility because as a righteous man, he probably believed that it would be wrong for him to condone what seemed to be obvious immorality. Another option, less likely option though, is he could have Mary executed. Mary's pregnancy would create the initial assumption that she had an affair. And since Mary lived in the city of Nazareth, her potential punishment was to be stoned to death based on Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 through 24. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 through 24 says, If there is a betrothed virgin... And a man meets her in the city and lies with her. Then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city, and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry for help, though she was in the city, and the man, because he violated his neighbor's wife. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So, theoretically, Joseph could have Mary stoned to death as one unfaithful to her betrothal vows. However, there are a couple of issues. One being the other man is not in the picture. There's no, there's, no, there, there's no man to execute as well. And the other issue is that Rome had taken capital punishment away from the Jews at this point. The Jews technically were not allowed to execute people, though as we see through uh, the narrative of the New Testament, they occasionally did that, such as Stephen, who's martyred in the book of Acts. So, Technically, he, that power doesn't exist anymore, but what we can, what, from most accounts, this option wasn't really pursued by most Jews anymore by this time. So in his mind, he's got one option left, and that is divorce. Because if the betrothed man desired to end the relationship before the marriage... He had to divorce his wife, put a certificate of divorce into her hands, just as if he were married to her. The certificate had to be signed by at least two witnesses, or it had to be given to the woman in the presence of two witnesses. So he could divorce her. This is, this is the action that he decided on, in part because it was the lesser of the three evils. One, his righteousness wouldn't let him stay with her because she had engaged in immorality as far as he was concerned. Two, he didn't want to put her to death. He loved her. So he decided that he would divorce her, but it's very interesting. The text says he would do it quietly because he did not want to put her to shame. That's the other characteristic about Joseph. Not only was he a righteous follower of God, but he was a devoted, loving spouse. He didn't want her to deal with the embarrassment. A public divorce would bring a lot more attention on her than she already has. He loved her so much that he didn't want that shame to be carried by her. 
And that love can also be seen when you think about God's intervention here through this dream. When Joseph learns of Mary's Holy Spirit conception, that she had been faithful to him, think about what he did. Or really, think about what he didn't do. I mean, he could have said, oh, oh, okay, well, this is going to be just too hard to raise this child that's not mine. And he could have said, whoa, God, I, I didn't sign up for all of this. This is, this is too, too much, too daunting, too difficult. He could have backed out altogether because uh, that's Mary's problem now, not mine. But he loved God and he loved Mary. You see, Joseph doesn't get as much credit as I think he probably deserves. Because Mary's the highly favored one. She's the one that God chose to carry his son. But Joseph is the one that God chose to, in a sense, be a substitute father on this earth. And I think it's because Joseph was righteous and because Joseph loved like he did that he was chosen by God. Let me make a couple more observations just about these, these two passages very quickly. One, when you look at how Matthew and Luke describe the conception of Jesus, they do so in the gentlest of terms. For instance, if you go back to, um, if you look at Matthew's account, in Matthew chapter 1, um, I've got to find it again. Well, verse 18, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh, no, it's verse 20. Um, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So you have that language there in Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. Verse 31. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Very gentle terminology. It's interesting because in Greek mythology, you'll come across stories of deities impregnating humans, but they're much more graphic, much more explicit, much more carnal. In those instances, I think even uh, Hercules, it would be one of those instances in those instances, there is a sexual relationship identified between a Greek deity and a human. That kind of concept is foreign to the conception narrative of Mary, I mean, of Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit working creatively, just like God worked creatively in creation. It's unique, it's different than anything man made. Even in the literature about it, Jesus' conception retains its unique status in comparison to the literature of men. The other thing I want you to notice in Matthew chapter 1 in regards to Joseph is it becomes very important for Joseph to stay 
in the story. Joseph is thinking about bowing out. Joseph is thinking about divorcing Mary because, as far as he can tell, something immoral happened. But he is retained in the story for one incredibly significant reason. It's his job to name Jesus. And here's why. The naming of a Jewish child takes place on the eighth day, the day of circumcision. And it's on that day that the child becomes the legal descendant of the family. Joseph has to stay in the story to some degree to ensure that Jesus legally, at the very least, is the son of David. Because the identification of Jesus in the lineage of David is primarily through Joseph. Now, we talked last week with the genealogy how if Matthew's genealogy is Joseph's lineage, and if Luke's genealogy is Mary's lineage, it doesn't matter because both of them go back to David. But we know for sure that Joseph's lineage traces back to David. And in Jewish culture, you traced your family tree not through the mother, but through the father. And so Joseph, Joseph has a significant role here that often goes underlooked, that often goes overlooked, I should say. He has the responsibility of ensuring that Jesus is identified legitimately, legally as his child for the purpose of maintaining that son of David status. Look at Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. There's significance in this angel speaking his identity as a son of David. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. There is a task here that Joseph has, a task of being the one to name Jesus. You can, if you go back to the Luke chapter 1 and look at the story of John the Baptist's birth, you can see there is great significance placed around the naming of him because Zacharias is mute at the time of his birth. And there's a whole process that has to happen. But it was important that Zacharias named him correctly. It's important that Joseph gives Jesus this name as well. When you look at these two stories, the announcements, one to Mary, one to Joseph, they're important. They're important because of how these two individuals responded to such a big assignment. And for me, as, as I look at both accounts, whether I'm talking about Mary or I'm talking about Joseph, I often wonder, would I have responded the same way they did if God approached me with the same announcement? Would I, like Mary, be willing to say, I'm a servant, I'll do whatever you say, knowing the challenges that come with the assignment? Would I, would I, like Joseph, unhesitatingly take Mary to be my wife, knowing the challenges? There is something beautiful about these two individuals. There is something worth respecting about these two individuals. 
But we do have to remember that they're not the individual. It's still all about Jesus in the end. They just demonstrate to us what a good follower of Christ looks like. And so we appeal to the story of these announcements because there is, there is in them a great example to follow. And they set us up for appreciating these two individuals who will raise the one and only Son of God. we got a lot of parents in this room tonight. Imagine that task. Imagine the assignment of bringing up God's Son. With that, oh, we still have five minutes. I thought we were at the close. With that, I want to share with you that, again, next week, Mike Gifford will be teaching the class. He'll be focusing on, on John the Baptist's story to help us bring some things together for future lessons. In two weeks, we're going to take our focus to the birth of Jesus Christ. And we'll spend a, a good bit of time there on his birth. Hopefully, I can cover all of his birth in one week, but it might take us two. I hope this study will continue to be beneficial and enjoyable for you. And I... Hope it helps you appreciate Jesus all the more. Let's go to God in prayer as we close out our study tonight a few minutes early. We are grateful again for another evening to be here. Lord, it's stormy outside, and and we pray that we will all safely return home. And it is our prayer that we will all be able to gather back here come Sunday so that we can worship you and study your word. And remember your son's sacrifice. Be with us, Lord, and help us to represent you to the best of our ability each and every day. May we go and do as you have called us to. We love you, Lord, and it's through the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.